it's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to Community Radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Good evening. I'm Claudio Mendonca, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Imagine a world with no Joshua trees in Joshua Tree National Park. As the climate continues to change, its effects are being seen in surprising places like California's deserts. Tonight, the California Report speaks with James Cornett, a longtime desert ecologist who has been studying those impacts. After a brief look at local news and weather, Paul Emery talks with hydrogeologist Steve Baker in this week's Water News. We close with a commentary from Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. Imagine a world with no Joshua trees in Joshua Tree National Park. Believe it or not, climate change is now impacting California's deserts, where prolonged hot weather and dry conditions are a way of life. James Cornett is a longtime desert ecologist who's been studying those impacts. He spoke with the California Report about some of his biggest concerns. My research is focused primarily on iconic plants of the California deserts, the Joshua tree being the most uh, significant one, I suppose. But I've also studied ocotillos in the Sonoran Desert and desert fan palms in the Sonoran Desert as well. And what's alarming to me is that these iconic plants are slowly vanishing from the California deserts. And that's a great concern because these are plants that you see on business logos, um, part of the national and state park information that they provide to the public usually deals with iconic desert plants. And yet these plants are vanishing. You mentioned Joshua trees. You spent a lot of time studying desert plant life in Joshua Tree National Park. As weird as it may sound, could we one day see no Joshua trees in the park that's named after them? I would predict that Joshua trees will be essentially eliminated from the park sometime in the early portion of next century. Right now, we're seeing an annual loss of Joshua trees on our three study sites in the park of around 2%. So you can extrapolate that ahead uh, over several decades and see that if that trend continues, Joshua trees just won't be existing in the park in the next century. On top of that, there's a greater increase in frequency of wildfires And when wildfires hit Joshua Tree stands, that 1% to 2% decrease right now can go up to 75% or even more in a single wildfire event. When you throw in wildfires, you may be looking at Joshua Trees vanishing from the park by the end of this century. Are there reasons why trees are struggling so much in these desert environments? What we're seeing are increased temperatures, which results in an increase in evaporation rate. And as more water evaporates, there's less water for the Joshua trees. In addition to that, we're seeing about a 10% reduction in average annual precipitation now in the last 50 years compared with the 50 years before that. So we're seeing higher evaporation rates, less rainfall, and perhaps most importantly, we're seeing a doubling of severe droughts that last three years or longer. And in my experience in Joshua National Park, those droughts are the uh, most important factor for the loss or the death of Joshua trees on my study sites. The potential loss of these trees is huge, 
because they are such an iconic part of the landscape of the Mojave Desert. But what would it mean for the ecosystem? Joshua trees are a keystone species. That is to say, there are a number of other species that depend upon Joshua trees for survival not the least of which would be bird life, uh, red-tailed hawks nest in Joshua trees. There are many areas of the Mojave Desert where red-tailed hawks cannot exist or at least cannot nest because the Joshua trees aren't there anymore and there's no suitable nesting sites. There are a number of bird species like ladderback woodpeckers and northern flickers that drill nest cavities in Joshua trees. As Joshua trees start to disappear from the Mojave Desert, there are fewer and fewer nest cavity sites for those birds. At some point, they will have to vacate those areas because there are no longer suitable nest sites. There are uh, jackrabbits and rodents depend upon Joshua trees as an emergency source of water. During drought, those animals will actually chew the bark off Joshua trees to get at the moist vascular tissue beneath. I could go on and on, but the loss of Joshua tree has a cascading effect on animal life in the Mojave Desert, such that the diversity and abundance of animals will decrease dramatically with the loss of Joshua trees. There are plenty of climate change skeptics But is there any other explanation for what's happening in the Mojave Desert and Joshua Tree National Park? To the best of our knowledge, based on research that's been done on atmospheric content of carbon dioxide in the last uh, millennia, even more, it does appear that the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere now is higher than it's been for thousands of years. So based on that, we can extrapolate that uh, we haven't seen this level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for thousands of years. And that bolsters the perspective that, in fact, what we're seeing now is unique in you know, the last geological epoch. Uh, we haven't experienced anything like this. So it's extremely unlikely that there's any other reason for the declines that I'm describing with regard to Josh trees other than climate change. This is all a pretty bleak assessment, as I'm sure you're well aware of. Is there any optimism or any signs of hope? Most of the people that I know that are working in this field are very pessimistic about the the next century and so far as climate is concerned. And I don't know if being truthful to people is the right approach or should we talk about all the things that we can do to improve the environment, that that's the right approach. And I've questioned now whether or not trying to put an optimistic spin on this is the best approach or is the doomsday approach the best one. I don't know. I haven't resolved that in my head, but I, it's hard for me to believe that most people on planet Earth are going to change their behaviors dramatically in the next decade. That is James Cornett, a longtime desert ecologist who is studying the Mojave Desert and Joshua Tree National Park. James, thanks so much for your time today. Pleasure was mine. Support for the California Report comes from Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. And Stanford Medicine, 
protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. And that is the California Report for this Tuesday, July 6th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Well, that didn't take long. The Sacramento Bee is reporting that the more contagious coronavirus variant, called Delta, is now the most common version of the virus here in California. Nearly 36% of coronavirus samples sequenced in June comprise the Delta variant, according to the California Department of Public Health. For comparison, in May, the Delta variant made up just 5.6% of sequenced cases in the state. Emerging evidence shows the Delta variant is more contagious, increases disease severity, such as risks of hospitalization, and is associated with a modest decrease in antibody activity in previously infected and vaccinated people, compared to the Alpha variant. The most recent data suggests it's about 60% more contagious than the Alpha variant. However, studies show that the COVID-19 vaccines offer adequate protection against the Delta variant and other variants of concern here in the U.S. Experts are more concerned about unvaccinated people who face higher risks of infection. Locally, Nevada County Public Health is reporting two new confirmed COVID-19 cases today for a total of 42 active cases. Six people are hospitalized. In regional weather, the National Weather Service is forecasting triple-digit heat along with warm overnight lows this week in most of our listening area. The combination of the very hot afternoons and warm nights will result in a period of high to very high heat risk. The National Weather Service is issuing an excessive heat watch for this weekend. In Nevada City and Grass Valley, tonight, clear with a low around 65. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 94. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight mostly clear, with a low around 52. Tomorrow will be sunny, with a high near 85. And for Sacramento and Woodland, tonight clear, with a low around 58. Tomorrow will be sunny, with a high near 95. NID has mandated that its customers reduce water by 20%. Paul Emery talks to hydrogeologist Steve Baker about it in this week's Water News. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by clear water and filtration on rough and ready highway Grass Valley. Well, Steve, welcome back. Uh, here's, a, here's a question for you, a big one, actually. Is this drought causing some areas to scramble for better emergency plans in order to keep the taps open? Ah, the answer to that is yes. I mean, look at Marin County. The Marin Municipal Water District is already looking at the possibility of running out of water next summer, 2022. And uh, that could happen if this coming winter is another dry one. They're really concerned about this. Right now, we are experiencing the second driest year on record. Okay, so we are all living uh, in, a, in a very special time, at a spe- very special time. They are looking at two emergency projects right now. One is a temporary desal plant, and the other, the second uh, project, is a pipeline that would 
go across the San Francisco Bay. They, uh, in the past, they, they explored the idea of a desal plant. This happened in the 90s and then it went on into the 2000s. But then they ended up shelving the idea in 2010. Had they done it, they could already be satisfying 60% of their water demand. And uh, the reason why they didn't was it cost a lot of money to, to put a desal plant together. And it has environmental concerns. We all know that. Our, our listeners recognize that. We've talked about that before. And then there are many people that felt that, that by putting a desal plant in, it would end up encouraging more development. And they feel that, many feel that Marin County has already developed a lot. Today, they're serving, the, the municipality is serving about 191,000 people. So that's a fair amount of people. And, and then, you know, of course, they're looking at running out of water, possibly, potentially, in August of 2022. That's a, that's a scary thing. So believe it or not, the district is considering leasing, believe it or not, leasing one or more prepackaged desal plants. I guess they come that way. And uh, that would deal with uh, this year's drought. And it makes a lot of money sense. It's far less expensive to do it that way. Uh, until that happens, or in addition to that happening, they're looking at a pipeline that would cross the San Francisco Bay. I'm assuming that that would be going across the Golden Gate Bridge. And that would facilitate tie-ins with other municipalities that exist south of Marin County. You know, everybody helps each other. That's how we deal with these kinds of things. It seems like in times like this, we need to innovate and expand our choices. But does that mean we'll be taking chances? Uh, of course, we take chances. We always take chances. Uh, there's always uncertainty as well as certainty. Uh, the wa here, here's an example. A water treatment plant in Orange County, they took a chance recently. And they did something pretty great. So it had a very positive outcome. Have you heard of that emerging contaminant? It's called PFASs, PFOSs. It's used in firefighting retardants. It's also a, a, a water-resistant sealant on a lot of food packaging. It's, it's all over the map, and it's, it's uh, not considered very healthy. Its technical name is perfluorooctanoic acid or perfluorooctane sulfonate. Okay, it's PFAS, PFOS. Those are the names that you commonly hear. Well, the city of Fullerton has built the first wellhead filtration treatment plant. It's right at the wellhead. And it removes those two chemical groups from their local wells. And that is a big deal because these wells, once they identify PFA, PFASs and PFOSs in them, they take them offline. They can't use them anymore. And one of the great benefits is that they now can keep them online once you know, the water is being treated. And that, that really increases their use of local groundwater, which is ideal, and removes their dependency on imported waters like water coming from the California Delta. So this is a very big success. But, you know, they took chances. They, it may not have worked, uh, but it, it did work. And so there are 25 more of these PFAS treatment facilities that are being designed right now and, and even constructed. And, and this is being done by the Orange County Water District. They're a very innovative group. I've met them and, and uh, spoken with them many times. And they're looking at these 25 uh, uh, projects as being completed within the next couple of years. So lots of success going on there. Well, let's bring it all back home, Steve. How, okay. how are we handling our water situation here in the foothills? 
We're, we're handling it. It has become more serious, everybody. NID has mandated its customers to reduce water use by 20%. So remember that. And this, you know, just because you're on a groundwater well doesn't mean that you can blow that off. Try to conserve water as well, 20% at least, uh, if you're using a groundwater well. Uh, what they're suggesting is, what, what NID is suggesting is that uh, every three days you can, you can go ahead and water outside every three days a week, no more than three days a week. And then within that, there's a caveat in that, no watering between 10 a.m. and 9 p.m., too much evaporation, all right? And, and, no, and, and just water enough. So you don't want any runoff from that watering that you do. And for goodness sakes, don't wash your driveway, your sidewalk, your balcony, things like that. And if you do decide to wash your car, which is probably a good idea, I probably should do mine, Make sure that the hose has a shutoff valve so you're not wasting that water. And thus, there are some people that have fountains, decorative features like that. If it's a circulating water, if that's how it works, that's, that's cool. That's fine. If it's not, then it's best just to turn it off. So the time right now is to be very frugal with our water use. And the restrictions could get more severe if the situation gets worse. That's true. Well, we'll deal with that when the time comes. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Steve. You're welcome. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with our water guy on KVMR, Steve Baker. Email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. Listen to an extended version of Water News on our website, kvmr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. We close with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti entitled, How High Can It Go? Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. From the March 2020 COVID low of the Dow in the 18,000s, the index has recently breached the 34,000 level. 3,000 more points on the Dow, or something like that, would make a double, considering the massive damage done to world economies from the imposed shutdowns on both businesses and travel. The possibility that the Dow would reach such a milestone so soon is indeed perplexing, if not outright bordering on the unbelievable. Gaining 3,000 more points is not a given by any stretch, but the fact that the Dow is even close to a double in the face of such economic calamity begs some sort of explanation. Analysts everywhere have opined on just why and how the incredible rally in stocks has occurred given the circumstances. We can comfortably conclude we will never know the exact reasons for the astonishing increase in stocks. The cross-currents of markets and the aggregate whims of investor sentiment can never be scientifically explained, hence the reason economics is more of a study of sociology than of science. The difference being a scientific conclusion can be replicated and its equations categorized. While stock market movements are just the sum of investor beliefs and their whims at any given time, the next question is just how high can this market go? No one can say how high it might go, how long it might take, or how low it might fall to if it happens at all. Whatever direction the markets do end up going will solely depend on the sum of all the beliefs and subsequent actions of the billions of players in it. As such, forecasting market direction is akin to knowing the exact path a leaf will take during a windstorm. Without knowing the exact reasons for the stunning rally in stocks, we cannot know where the markets will go tomorrow, next week, or next year. 
Keeping this fact in mind, investors can take a variety of actions in their portfolios. You can do nothing, or you could sell all your positions immediately. You could sell some of the positions immediately. You can sell all or a portion of your positions if and when prices hit a predetermined stop point. You can buy more positions, or you can buy opposing positions in an attempt to hedge or counterbalance the account. Keeping in mind it may not be possible to achieve a perfect counterbalance due to the nature of markets. In my experience, many investors and advisors opt for the first selection, basically holding for the long term. Past listeners of Money Matters know I am not a wholehearted supporter of hold for the long term for a variety of reasons. I don't know how much long I have left in my term, and truthfully neither does anyone else. Hold for the long term also assumes markets always come back. Based on the federal restriction that we can't forecast markets in any direction at any time, the statement, the market always comes back, is actually an illegal one for an advisor to say so. Never say never. Markets may always come back until they don't. The pain and stress of a severe market crash can be excruciating. That translates to healthy and during extreme crashes can be detrimental to one's health and well-being and possibly even one's life. And finally, buy low and sell high is an old market adage. It isn't ride them wherever they go. I will leave it to the imagination as to how that applies. Buying stocks when they're all beat up and riding them higher means profits, and you can't do that without having some dry powder from selling some earlier. Much like leaving a slot machine when you have lost enough money. My preferred strategy centers around number four, and that is knowing when to get out of Dodge. In other words, leaving the casino when you have lost enough money and using stops and selling as the market goes down rather than to keep pulling the handle of the stock market slot machine all while watching your bank account dissolve into the nothingness of a market crash. That's it for today's Money Matters. The views expressed are my opinions only and do not necessarily reflect those of this station and staff, management, or underwriters. This newscast is not meant as investment advice of any kind. Consult a qualified professional before making any investment decisions and do your own research before investing. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California Insurance License OL34249, and I'm a Medicare-approved agent in the state of California. Thanks for listening. That's our newscast for this evening. Coming up next at 6.30, it's Educationally Speaking. And at 7 p.m., we bring you Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. We get support from Wallace Design Studio, providing architectural services and design for commercial, residential, and civic projects. Clients include River Valley Community Bank, The Pizza Joint, Sierra Central Credit Union, and projects throughout Northern California. Information? wallacedesignstudio.com and Milkman Toner Company providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners carrying environmentally safe remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support serving Northern California counties also San Francisco to Lake Tahoe milkmancompany.com
Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting Community Radio. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Have a good night. <laughs>